button. There we go. Um, welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are in Daniel chapter 10. And um, I'm going to give you the brief backstory here. Um, so 10 is the introduction, chapter 10, of this final vision. 11 is the main body of the vision and part of chapter 12, I already said. Um, tonight, among other things, we're going to see spiritual warfare. How many have heard those, that term before, those terms before? Spiritual warfare, not warfare between this nation and that nation, but warfare in the heavens. We're going to talk about angels tonight and about demons a little bit as well. So as it, that's by way of introduction. Let's go ahead and dive into chapter 10. So I know you're awake. Please say amen. amen. Pretty good. And those of you on Zoom, guys, see you waving. All right. And I see your mouths move too. Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war or great warfare. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Okay, let's take that verse apart. So this is the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. You remember that Daniel gets there and it's the Babylonian kingdom. The Persians eventually take over and um, Cyrus is in his third year. So this is a flashback sort of when he had this vision that he's telling us about. He's saying it is a message or a revelation was given to Daniel. This is different than the other visions that he had or dreams um, there it says, given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. That's the name they gave him in Babylon as a way of inculcating him into the Babylonians' culture to make him more pagan, more Babylonian. Forget your Jewish roots. It's only there to remind us it's the same Daniel. Daniel is about 84, 85 years old at this time. He serves, we learned at the beginning of the book, until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the third year, okay? What happens is there was an order given finally after 70 years for the Jews to be able to return to their homeland. They had been taken captive in uh, Babylon and elsewhere. Babylon is modern day Iran, but basic, I'm sorry, Iraq, sorry, uh, just south of Baghdad. Um, and he, and Persia, by the way, is modern day Iran, just a give you the little play-by-play -play here. So uh, in the first year of King Cyrus's reign, he gives an order that the Jews can go home to Israel. Israel's in, in shambles. They're allowed to rebuild the city and the temple. And Daniel is thrilled. This is two years later, and he's no longer thrilled. And the reason is most of the Jews didn't go back. About 40,000 went back to Israel to try to rebuild their country, their, get the worship going again at the temple, and it's in shambles. Most of the Jews stayed where they were. I've got a new pagan lifestyle here. I'm doing well financially. Who wants to go back and rebuild our old country? Daniel is crushed by this. He, Daniel, didn't go back. He's in his 80s. He's done with government service. He was basically like a prime minister. He's done with it, but he stays there probably either because he's too old to travel, some scholars thought, and also because he, the majority opinion was, because he thought he could do more good there 
politically with the power that he still had and the people that he knew that were in power. So this is the introduction to that revelation. Believe it or not, the revelation doesn't come till chapter 11, but the discussion between him and a celestial being, I'll call him for now, is what fills chapter 10. And there's a lot of interesting insights. Um, so it came to him in a vision, uh, verse two. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. Verse three, I ate no choice food, no meat or wine, touched my lips, and I used no lotions. I didn't anoint my body uh, at all until the three weeks were over. Okay, stop right there. First of all, he mourned for three weeks. Why is he mourning? You mourn when someone passes away, when there's a great loss, right? Some, it doesn't say, right? It may be that he's mourning over the loss that most of the Jews didn't go back, right? That was his big hope. He's so um, in love with God and God's kingdom. Uh, it may be the mourning over the sin of his people. We saw that in chapter 9 in his prayers, if you remember. Whatever the reason was, he's mourning for three weeks, I'm not a math major, but that's 21 days. Why does that come up? You'll see in a minute, okay? So he begins mourning, and he is eating no choice food. In other words, it's not really a fast, but it is um, withholding from himself any of the good food or wine that he could have had, didn't anoint his body with oil. He is just so in prayer and mourning. Um, sackcloth and ashes kind of thing that comes up a chapter ago. He is mourning because of his people and their sin and his own, no doubt, even though he's a very godly man. He is no doubt praying during this time for Israel, 21 days. If you remember nothing else, remember that. It'll come up later, okay? Mourned for three weeks, no choice food, meat, wine, no lotions until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, verse 4 says, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that's the Tigris River, that goes all the way back, by the way, to Genesis 2. So he's standing on the bank of the river. I looked up and there before me was a man. And here comes the picture. Don't let the word man throw you because you're going to see it's clearly not a man. Okay. Question is, who is it? And scholars divide on this who is it thing. I'll tell you in a second. But remember, 21 days he mourned, no answer to prayer. Okay? Have you ever prayed for something? Are you now praying for something and still waiting for the answer to prayer? I am, right? I bet everybody's praying for something, that salvation of a loved one, something. Sometimes God answers quickly. Sometimes he doesn't. Okay? Oftentimes, he delays as a faith builder or because there's a reason for the delay. We don't know what it is, right? We want the spiritual vending machine where you put your money in, which is the prayer, and you push the button, and out comes the answer, right? It's been said every prayer is answered one of three ways. Yes, no, and wait, which is the hardest one, isn't it? Daniel, we're going to find out, has to wait three weeks. He's surprised by this because in the previous chapter, while he's still praying, boom, he gets a vision. Do you remember? Right around verse 20 or 21 of the previous chapter. He waits 21 days. 
Sometimes there's just a God thing. He's making us wait for whatever reason. There's things we've prayed for that 10 years now, you never know when God will answer your prayers, but he always does what's best. What's weird about this chapter is we're about to find out that the, the reason for the delay in the answer to Daniel's prayer is spiritual warfare going on in the heavens, unseen by Daniel or anybody else, but that's what delayed the answer to prayer. You say, I didn't see that yet. No, we haven't gotten there yet. I'm just trying to keep your attention. Say amen so I know you're awake. Amen. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. So all of a sudden, here comes the vision. Verse 5. I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen. The word for linen is really fine linen. With a belt of fine gold from Ufaz. Now, it really just says Ufaz, and we're not sure what that means. We think it means gold from Ufaz, but around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Guy's got his own PA system, for those of you that are musicians like me. This is no ordinary man. Previously in the book of Daniel and elsewhere in the Bible, it's one like a man. It's the only way to describe him. Angels are non-corporeal. That's a fancy word. All it means is they don't have real extension in space like you and I do. But when God allows them to visit us or speak to us, he makes them look like a man. I have a feeling that's because if we saw what they really looked like, it would terrify us even more. What you're going to see is Daniel is so terrified, he basically goes into a coma, not once, but twice, you'll see. Okay, now, so who is this person? Keep your finger here and go with me to the book of Revelation. You remember what I just read. Go to Revelation chapter 1. You remember what I just read, the description. Doesn't sound like a normal person you'd meet at the supermarket, right? John, in the book of Revelation, meets a similar being. And this time in John, we know who it is. Okay. Verse 12 of Revelation 1. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone dressed like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. There's the linen. And with a gold sash, golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. I'm skipping down. Uh, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Look at verse 17. And John high-fived him and said, hey, how you doing? Wrong. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first, the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. And he tells him to write. We know who this guy is. It's Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, glorified. He doesn't look like Jesus the carpenter. 
the way John remembers him, or he would have said, oh, Jesus, great to see you again. This, he, he is glorified. He is God shining. Now, is that the same as the person we just saw? A lot of scholars think this is a pre-incarnate, remember this is about 500 BC, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Might be. I'll show you where we go as we go along that it might not be. Also, there's a theory that there's two different angelic beings or celestial beings, which could be Christ or an angel, that appear here. Some say it's only one. Some say it's two. I'll show you that as we go. I lean toward the idea this is not Jesus Christ. I think it's an angel. I'll show you why. If there's one, but there might be two. I'll show you that too. Okay, so you see the dynamic uh, appearance of this guy. Dressed in linen, that's what the uh, priests were supposed to wear, fine white linen, a belt of fine gold, glory is what we're seeing here, and great majesty, a body like a precious stone, face like lightning, shining, he can barely look at him, um, eyes like flaming torches, arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, I'm still in verse 6, and his voice like the sound of a multitude, like many waters, remember, was revelation, his voice was like just roaring sound, overwhelming kind of thing, a vision from some heavenly being. Let's keep reading. So far, that's what we've got. Verse 7, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. He's got people with him on the banks of the Tigris River, maybe went there to pray or to worship God. I was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. Now, they didn't see it, but they sensed in some way some supernatural being, and they all split. Daniel doesn't, doesn't run away. He can't, we're about to see. He just gets rubbery legs and collapses, like almost like in a coma, like I said earlier. This is very reminiscent of the book of Acts. Do you remember when Saul is persecuting Christians. He's on the road to Damascus. You all remember the story, the conversion of Saul. Riding along, God knocks him off his high horse. Do you remember all that? And speaks to him from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You remember that? Who was Saul persecuting? Christians. But who's speaking? Christ. He ends up telling him. It's me whom you're persecuting. You say, well, he wasn't really persecuting Jesus. That's how Jesus sees it. You persecute Christians, you're persecuting his people. It's like persecuting Christ himself. At that time, twice he tells that story in the book of Acts. We won't go there. I think it's Acts 15. I have it in the notes somewhere. What happens is the people around him hear the sound, but they can't make out the words, and they're terrified as well. Very similar. And that was Christ much like John encountered in the book of Revelation, which we already saw. So the people with him don't see it, only D Daniel sees it, but they, they have terror overwhelming them, and they split. These people just run away and hide. Verse 8, so I, that's Daniel, was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. You ever put in a really hard day of work and you feel like, 
I've got no strength. <laughs> Ken said fishing. Yeah, that's hard work. Um, you have no strength left. This is literally no strength left. He is absolutely emptied out from this. And by the way, that's the best way to be when you want to hear from God. You come with a big ego and think God, you got to tell God a few things. You're not going to hear much. He has emptied himself mourning and praying for his people. Now he's just completely devoid of all energy. He uh, He's completely afraid. No strength. His face is deadly pale, helpless. Then I heard him speaking, verse 9. And as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. This happens when I'm speaking often. People fall into a deep sleep. But anyway, um, I heard him speaking. And as I listened, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Isn't that interesting? This angel speaking with that loud, commanding voice, looking the way he does. And he falls into a deep sleep. Maybe out of fear. That's what some scholars have said. But it could be. Who wouldn't want Daniel to listen to this angel or Christ? Who wouldn't want that? Satan, right? Demons. Have you ever been in church when you really want to pay attention or a Bible study? Or have you ever been praying right before bed and you're kind of tired, but you're praying and this happens? Lord, we just give thanks to you for... And then you realize, oh, I was praying. I'm so sorry. You kind of are falling asleep in church or Bible study. Could it be that Satan doesn't want you to hear what's about to be said? That's one of the theories about what's going on here, because he hears him speaking, and he falls into a deep sleep. There's the coma, my face to the ground, proskuneo. That's the position of worship where we're just down. We, we don't high-five God. We worship him bowing down. Okay, here's grace, verse 10. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Now he's on his hands and knees. Mind you, he's mid-80s, right? Um, he's trembling on his hands and knees. The hand touched him. Remember the TV show, Touched by an Angel. Very good. Couldn't be the Lord Jesus. I'm not saying either way. Great scholars disagree. Some supernatural being is visiting him and for a reason. We haven't even gotten to the message yet. That doesn't come to the next chapter, but you'll see why this is a pretty amazing chapter. Verse 11, look at the words of comfort. Daniel, you who are highly favored or highly esteemed, greatly precious is literally how it reads in the Hebrew. He's reassuring him. He's on his hands and knees. He's trembling. He's shaking. And he says, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, verse 11, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Now he's still shaking, but at least he's on his feet, right? From the dirt to the hands and knees to now he's standing, still shaking. But the angel really assures him, you're highly esteemed. Look how humble he was. Look how he was mourning and praying for his people and for sin. Those are the kinds of people that hear that. You're highly esteemed. What do we Christians want to hear when we get to heaven? Well done, good and faithful servant, right? He's hearing it right now and he's still alive. Praise God. So 
He wants him to consider carefully this message. Stand up proper to stand when you hear the word of God preached, right? Or at least read. I've now been sent to you. So Daniel stands up, verse 12. Then he continued, fear not. Do not be afraid, Daniel. Here it comes. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. Translation. Remember that first day of those 21, Daniel, when you started praying and worshiping God and mourning and ate no food and were fasting and just wanted to concentrate on God? When he's retired from public service, he's got more time to pray. Amen. He says, remember that from that second, that's when the order was given for me, this being, whether it's Christ or an angel, go minister to Daniel. You say, well, wait a minute. There's a gap of 21 days. What took him so long? Flight was delayed, maybe. Um, TSA took too long and he missed his flight. This is what we're about to find out what delayed him. And it's really surprising. Um, spiritual warfare. I've come in response to your words. We could talk about that phrase all night. I have come in response to your good behavior. Nope. How holy you are to your words. Prayer, listen, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Prayer is the most powerful weapon in the universe. It makes atomic bombs look like firecrackers. And yet it is not used to its full potential. And I don't mean use it for your own good. I mean, use it for God's glory. We talked about prayer last week and the week before. I won't go into all that again, but Prayer, the, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, it says in the book of James, I think it is. Um, we who are, some of us, older and have more time on our hands. Well, I used to serve at the church and now I'm not able to physically or I can't get around or it's harder for me. I get it. But do you have time to pray? I think we don't realize how powerful prayer is. Daniel's one guy, and he was praying, and an angel was sent immediately, delayed 21 days, but sent immediately. God hears our prayers, listen, in real time, right? There has to be, though, in us that confidence that he's not only heard it, but that he will do the best thing. How many know that we don't know exactly what to pray for sometimes? And what we think is the best thing, and I'm advising God, here's what you ought to do wrong. I mean, it's fine to ask for things, but sometimes we want one thing. God gives us a whole nother thing. And we look back a year later and go, you know what? That was the better thing. It was better, right? Sometimes uh, God answers prayer immediately. Sometimes he makes us wait, but wow, this is a pretty amazing thing. Let's keep reading. Um, notice that he set his mind to gain understanding. He wanted to dive deeper into the prophecy, into the word. He wanted to humble himself before God. And his words were heard. Verse 13, but here it comes. This is why he's late. The prince of, per of Persia is literally how it reads. The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. 
First thing, the, the person speaking is either an angel or the Lord Jesus Christ before he is born in the manger. With me so far? Scholars disagree. So it's a supernatural being. Okay, number one. Therefore, the prince of Persia cannot be a human being. Okay. You say, well, there were princes in the Persian kingdom. Yes, that's true. Men, right? People. The prince, the word for prince is literally in Hebrew, it means ruler or the head of. Okay. Some sort of angelic being resisted him, stopped him, delayed him from answering this prayer. Remember I said earlier, who wouldn't want Daniel's prayer answered? Satan. Satan, though, is a fallen angel. He is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere present. If he's in Tokyo, he's not in Chicago, okay? If he's in Coarse Gold, he's not in Oakhurst. He's localized. But he uses, like leaders do, his minions, his underlings, and there's an, a hierarchy of demonic beings. These are fallen angels who rebelled with Satan. Don't go there now, but you can read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, the two passages that explain how did Satan become Satan, okay? I, we won't go there now. Um, so this prince of the Persian kingdom appears to be a demon that is um, has been given the authority and in to be in charge of and oversee the Persian kingdom, which, by the way, is very pagan. Satan loves that. The demons love that. From this passage, and there are a handful maybe of other passages, but they're all questionable, mainly it's this passage from which the whole idea comes of, how many have heard this term, territorial spirits. You ever heard of that? Territories, territorial spirits has the idea of, just like we read, there's a prince, some sort of a demon over the Persian kingdom. So some have extrapolated that out and said, well, there must be a prince of China and a prince of Washington, D.C., God forbid. And, and I'm talking about demonic influence that is, in a sense, the counterpoint, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, uh, let's see, how to, what, what's the word I want? Um, uh, another, a, a sort of a supernatural representation of the actual prince of Persia, okay? These demons would have one goal, okay? Which would be sin and get everybody away from and get their minds off of God, Christ, Bible, repent, you know, awareness of sin. They would completely want to create chaos. All of the things in Satan's resume that he does, the demons would want the same, right? The accuser of the brethren, he would create division with people. War pleases Satan because innocent people die, right? And guilty people both. This particular prince of the Persian kingdom stopped this angel from answering the prayer immediately. He tied him up in battle for 21 days. This personage that's speaking says, then Michael, one of the chief princes, you know who that is, Michael, the 
archangel. Remember, only two angels in the whole Bible have names, Gabriel, Michael. Gabriel is usually seen delivering the message. He talks to Mary, remember? You're highly esteemed, Mary. You're going to have a child, the Holy Spirit, all that. Michael is always seen with regard to doing battle with Satan. Michael is the archangel assigned to, from this passage, we get the idea, Israel, specifically. I'll show you that in a second. Okay, so there's this a demonic battle went on. Daniel had no idea he couldn't see it. If you know anything about science, you know that what we see is the perceivable world. You see this podium. Those of you on Zoom can't see it, but trust me, there's a podium here. Um, the podium is made of wood. It is solid. And yet, if you know anything about physics, you know that it's made up of atoms, which are made up of electrons and protons that are constantly, wait for it, moving. Doesn't look like it to me. Me either. Okay. There's an unseen world here that you got to have a very powerful microscope to see, right? You ever get a drop of water out of a stream or a lake and you look at it and you go, look how clear the water is. And then you get a microscope and you go, whoa, not that clear, right? There are unseen worlds all around us, like the microscope, uh, what's in a drop of water, the protons and neutrons and um, electrons, all that stuff. I'm not an expert. Atoms, molecules, all that stuff. In the same way, we live in what's called three dimensions, width, length, and depth. Are you with me? That's what we think in. Yet there's a fourth dimension, which is time. Okay. But there are dimensions above those four. You go, how could there be? I don't know. Okay. But there are, I mean, physicists will tell you there's at least 10 dimensions. Don't ask me to explain that. I have no idea how they get that. But in some dimension far above us, okay, there are, there are, is the dimension where angels dwell. They can break through to our dimension if they're sent to occasionally, not very often, deliver a message to someone like Daniel or to Mary or to Joseph from what have you. But they are all around us. I have no doubt there are angels here right now. By the way, welcome Lord Jesus, because I'm positive he's with us. Do you know why? Two or more, and there's more than two, are gathered. We're not here to play bingo or trivial pursuit or sing songs. We're here in his name, aren't we? So Christ is here. I'm sure there are angels here, but it wouldn't surprise me if there are demons that want to distract people here, including me. Every time you see me screw up, that's my excuse. But in any case, my point is there's a whole spiritual world we cannot see. When we leave this world and pass away, we each are body, soul, spirit. Two of those three are immaterial. The body goes into the grave, the soul and the spirit. Scripture twice says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We leave this realm and go into that spiritual realm. We call it heaven and what have you. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about territorial spirits. This is the main passage where they get that. Another one that's iffy to me is Luke 4. You don't need to turn there. Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Do you remember? And he says at one point to Jesus, takes him up at the top of the temple and says, 
on a high mountain, sorry, and says, shows them all the kingdoms of the world and says, all these have been given to me and I give them to whomever I wish. Second Corinthians calls Satan the God, small g, of this world. Now, does Satan give kingdoms to whomever he wishes to some extent with an asterisk? What's the asterisk? God overrules Satan completely. And God is the one, Romans 13 says, that puts every single leader in power. Whether you voted for Obama, Trump, Clinton, whoever, Biden, whether you like these characters or not, God has a reason for putting them in. Sometimes we get the leader we deserve, not the one we want. No, we don't do politics here. Not much. Okay, let's keep rolling. I want to talk, though, a little bit about Satan, what he is and what he isn't. He's a fallen angel. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. However, he's been at his craft for thousands and thousands of years. He has observed women and men and boys and girls. He knows how to tempt people. In the same way, his demons follow his commands. Um, okay, so a couple things. Spiritual warfare often has a counterpart, that's the word I was looking for earlier, in heaven when we're encountering it on earth, okay? Someone is really badgering us, and spiritually, there may be something going on in heaven as well. All the more reason to pray, because notice the angel, the demon that's tried to stop this angel for 21 days, considered Daniel's prayer so important that he, for 21 days, did battle with this angel. Why don't you think it's Jesus, Joe? The scholars that don't think it's Jesus don't think it's Jesus because of verse 13. Look at it again. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, chief princes, sorry, came to help me. Would Jesus need help from the angel Michael dealing with a single demon? I can't, maybe, but I can't imagine that. I think this is an angel and Michael showed up to help because he was detained there with the king of Persia. Further on in this scripture, not now, but in a little while, we're going to see there's a similar prince of Greece has got one. It would not surprise me a bit if there's an, a demon over Washington, D.C., Sacramento, right? Hollywood, come on. Or maybe the whole United States. Maybe they really got a promotion or demotion, as the case may be. Um, so this is kind of a weird thing. Territorial spirits. Okay. So they, they may exist. It certainly is something like that going on here. Um, angelic influence. Keep your finger here and go to Ephesians chapter six, Ephesians chapter six, way into the new Testament and, uh, Galatians, then Ephesians go eat is how I remember that. And then the PC is popcorn for Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, this is not a study on demons per se, but we're talking about it in Daniel. So here we go. Pick it up in verse 10. How many have heard of putting on the full armor of God? Okay. I'm going to start with what we should do as Christians, scripturally, with regard to the demonic. Okay, and then I'm going to show you, I'm going to tell you what we shouldn't and cannot do with me so far. Okay, Satan 
wants, I believe, one of two things. He wants two, one of two extremes. Satan loves the people that go, there's no devil. There's no demons. It's just a personification of evil. How quaint for those people 2,000 years ago. There's no devil. That's one extreme. Okay. Um, Barna's research recently of churchgoers said, guess what percentage of Christian churchgoers say there's no Satan? 47%. Another 5% said, I'm just not sure. Okay, that's 52%, if my math is right, of church-going Christians think there's no Satan. Listen, Jesus talked a lot about Satan. He's in the Old Testament as well. Paul talks a lot about him. We're about to do it in Ephesians 6. The other extreme Satan wants is, you ever meet these kind of Christians? There's a, there's a devil behind every rock. You sneeze and they go, I rebuke you, demon of sneezing. The, everything's demonic, and you stub your toe, and you go, I do, rebuke you, toe-stubbing demon. Everything's a demon. They're, they're always concerned. Listen, if we were supposed to concentrate on demons, there'd be whole books about this in the Bible. It's a bit part, folks. You know why? Concentrate on Christ, and you don't have to worry about demons. Ephesians 6. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Sounds real to me. Here it comes. You ready? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You ever had a bad boss, a horrible spouse, a bad father, a bad friend, a bad business partner, somebody that hurt you? That's flesh and blood. You know what this says? Yeah, I know. But that's not the real struggle. Look, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Notice the hierarchy. The authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Remember the other dimension we talked about? That's where they are. Therefore, verse 13, what should we do? Dress for battle. Put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. And it goes on the belt of truth. We have to know what we believe and why we believe it, don't we? The belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness. The more we sin, the more Satan has places he can fire arrows at us, right? This regards godly living. Verse 15, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We have to know the gospel and the feet talks about where we're going with our lives. In 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's the only offensive weapon, by the way, the rest are defensive. The word of God, know the Bible. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Keep alert, praying for all the saints. Okay, anybody notice what that didn't say? Doesn't say, rebuke the devil yourself. Go ahead. Satan, I rebuke you. You ever hear a Christian say that? That is not in the Bible, folks. Let me ask you this question. If it, Theoretically, let's say you can do that. Satan, I rebuke you. How long does it last? 
He's done, you know. Satan, we bind you now in the name of Jesus. If that worked, then he's bound forever. Does it last an hour? Okay, then Bill, you have to take over and, and an hour from now, you say it and then we'll bind him. Satan's not bound on this planet. This is the key passage on demons and Satan in the whole Bible. All I see is put on the full armor of God. It's all him, right? What does James say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's no, I bind you, Satan. I rebuke you, Satan. It's not done. In the book of Jude, um, yeah, we better go there because you're going to think I'm crazy if I don't show you the verse. Go to Jude. It's one book to the left of Revelation. Find Revelation and take a left. You come to the short little book of Jude. This is Jude is a collection of the strangest thoughts in the whole Bible, in my opinion. Pretty amazing book. Um, it's one chapter. I think we did it. It took us four weeks because the teacher's a little slow. Okay, verse nine. But even the archangel Michael, oh, there he is. By the way, probably the greatest and most mighty of all the angels. He's going to encounter Satan in this verse. Let's see what it says. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, yes, what did he do? Did he, I rebuke you, say, oh, no, it's not there. Did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, what's going on with Moses? Quickly, Moses died. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we have Moses' funeral. Guess who was there? Moses and God. God buried Moses. Did you know that? So that his body would not be, uh, his uh, grave would not be a, a place of, you know, they'd sell postcards and charge you $9 to walk by it and touch it for power. We don't know where he was buried. God buried him because God had plans for Moses later. You say he did? Yeah, he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. Remember Mark, uh, Matthew 17? He also shows up probably in the book of Revelation in chapter 11 as one of the two witnesses, he and Elijah, who was taken to heaven alive. Moses was taken to heaven after he died. Michael is disputing with the body of them, uh, uh, with the devil about the body of Moses. Why? Because part of the deal is because of sin with Adam and Eve, all bodies, when they die, guess what they do? They die. They decay. Moses' body. God says, I got plans for this one. And the devil says, oh, no, no, he's mine. Now he's dead. The body will decay. Michael and the devil dispute. Michael himself doesn't say, I rebuke you, Satan. By the way, if he did, that wouldn't give me a license to say it. I'm nowhere near his spiritual ability and strength. Michael says, what? The Lord rebuke you. We should do the same thing. More about that in a minute. We're going to take our two-minute break and uh, allow our aging bodies to stretch. Don't go away. I'll be right back. All right. We are back in uh, Daniel chapter 10. Very unusual passage of scripture for sure. Um, find your places, if you will, and take your seats. Um, we got a lively crowd here today. Okay. There is one instance where Satan is bound. You say, oh, exception. Correct. Revelation 20, end of the world, right? In the millennium era, 
God gives the order, an angel binds Satan. Are you ready for this? For a thousand years. I can't wait for that. Um, and then he's released for a short time. You can read Revelation when, you're, when you have time. Um, but we're going to keep rolling for now. So there's some sort of demonic battle going on in the heavens. And it might be going on in our lives as well, where Satan does not want us to do a certain thing. All the more reason to put on the full armor of God. All the more reason to pray, pray, pray. Clearly, it makes a difference. Amen? All right. Um, so, uh, yeah, verse 13, we finished. I was detained there with the king of Persia or the prince of Persia, the ruler of Persia. He's talking about a, a demonic battle. Michael comes and helps him. Now, verse 14, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people. That's the Jews for Daniel in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. Turns out the vision's going to be close in time. The next few empires that have to do with Israel, and then distant in time, the end of the world, uh, second coming and all of that uh, is what we'll get to probably next week, but maybe we'll get there this week. Let's see. Um, yeah, a, a still future kind of a thing. Verse 15, while he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. You say, again? Yes, again. This is a, a mighty spiritual being. He, he, Daniel can't even speak. Verse 16. Then one who looked like a man. See, this is where some people say this is a different angel. Um, I don't know. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and I began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. Again, we see grace, an angel touches his mouth. God gives the power, right? Angels don't have power in and of themselves. And he is able to speak. He's comforted. But when he speaks, he doesn't say, okay, I'm glad that's over. Look what he says. I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord. I feel very weak. Verse 17, he explains, how can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord. My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Pretty amazing encounter here. This is a prophet of God in his 80s who's had other visions. This one knocks him for a loop. He keeps falling down. He's so weak. He can barely talk. He can barely breathe. When he can finally talk because of the touching of his lips, he's just saying, I can't breathe. I can't even talk. I'm too weak. I, I you know, Mind-blowing is what he's saying. Verse 18, again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. This is a miracle, just like the lips thing. Just touched him and gave him strength. Touched by an angel. Remember the show? Um, okay. That's in no way an endorsement. I don't know how scriptural that show was. I think I saw it twice. Anyway, um, he touched him and gave him strength. Verse 19, again, the words, do not be afraid. Fear not. You who are highly esteemed, he said, peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. Another miracle, if you're keeping track, right? The angel said, be strong now. 
that's not him urging you, urging Daniel. It's not like somebody going, come on, buck up, sit up straight and be strong. If I say that to somebody, they might resent that. An angel says it, it happens because it's God's power. Amen. Be strong. Um, let's see. Um, I was strengthened and I said, speak, my Lord. Now he's ready to listen. You've given me strength supernaturally. Verse 20. So he said, by the way, this is the end of the chapter. And we still haven't gotten to any of the message, right? It's just the encounter with the angel. You're like, wow. Do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return. That's a rhetorical question. The answer is in chapter 11 and chapter 12 to tell him all that stuff. He doesn't answer it here. Do you know why I've come to you? The answer is to answer his prayer for knowledge and understanding and, and, and give him some peace regarding the mourning about his people, Israel, and why they're not going back to their country and why Israel's not going to be like it was. Um, do you know why I've come to you? Listen to this. Soon, middle of verse 20, I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Another demonic spirit in charge of the coming kingdom, God predicting it, of Greece. You may remember the kingdoms as outlined three times already, at least maybe four in Daniel were, remember the statue, remember the other beasts and what have you, Babylon, followed by Medo-Persia or the Persian empire, followed by the Greek empire, followed by the Roman empire. He's saying, as soon as I've dealt with the Persian guy, the Greek, um, the prince of Greece will come. They're going to take over and he's got to deal with him. But first, I will tell you, verse 21, what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Your, by the way, your prince is plural, meaning it's not Daniel. Your personal guardian angel is Michael. Oh, pretty cool. Really? Thank you. Your is plural, meaning what? Israel's prince, the angel in charge of protecting, guiding, fighting for Israel is Michael, the archangel. My Mikael in Hebrew means who is like God. Um, L-E-L is God. In other words, the rhetorical question, the answer is no one, right? He's giving glory back to God. So there's some other demonic thing that's going to happen with the Greek kingdom. Um, first, I'll tell you what's written in the book of truth. Okay. Now we certainly call the Bible, the book of truth. And it is, does the Bible include all the truth that God wanted us to have answer? Yes. If it, if it doesn't, then we ought to be able to add to it. And if you read the last chapter of revelation, there's some serious penalties against adding or subtracting from this book right? We like to say in this Bible study, it's not a smorgasbord where you, I like that part, but I'm not, I don't like these other parts that talk about stuff that I do. It's not a smorgasbord. You got to take it all, right? You also can't add to it. Tell that to the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and several other cults that add to it or change it or subtract from it. But what is this book of truth that he speaks of? Okay. You want the short answer? Nobody knows. It appears that the common answer you read in commentaries is that there is some book in heaven that contains all the knowledge. 
the Bible contains all the knowledge he wanted us to know. Okay, if you wanted us to know more about demons and the names of the other 10,000 angels, 10 million angels, it would be in here, right? There'd be a directory. You could look up which angel. That's stuff he didn't want us to know. But somewhere there's a book with all truth that is available that we don't know. I think that would even be science. Um, it could be history. It could be physics. It could be linguistics. It could be music. Amen, Bill? Bill's a musician. All that stuff. What God wanted us to know, though, he put in this book. Very important. So um, he's going to tell them what's written in heaven about what's going to happen in the future. Um, I have to tell you, as we end chapter 10, and we're about to dive into chapter 11, a couple more quick things. Um, the first of which is Satan's resume. Okay. Again, we don't want to dwell too much on Satan, but here's a short resume. Who is this guy? Okay. Prince of demons, Mark 3. The God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4. What does he do, Joe? He darkens, listen to this, darkens the minds of unbelievers. Darkens the mind. You ever met somebody, you try to tell them about Christ, and they just, you can see the, it's not connecting. He darkens the minds of unbelievers. He deceives the world, Revelation 12. He plants weeds, unbelievers, throughout the world. Guess where? Churches right? Remember the weeds and the tares? Um, that look sure look like wheat, look like Christians, and they're not. Um, he takes people captive to do his will, 2 Timothy 2. He plucks up the seed of the word. You remember the bird plucked up the seed when the sower did it? Jesus explains that the bird is the devil that takes away the seed, right? Um, he thwarts missionary activity, 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. Um, he throws ministers in prison, Revelation 2.10, uh, and his sub-princes do um, the same sort of thing. Somewhere I have a really interesting thing I wanted to read to you right now. Oh, there it is. Um, okay, a brief interlude here, sorry. Um, most of the spiritual world is veiled to us, okay? But I'm telling you, it's going on all around us. Once in a while, not very often, we see it or we sense it, okay? This is a cool story. This is from Billy Graham's book. The Reverend John G. Patton, pioneer missionary in the, uh, the new, gosh, Hebrides, I think. Is that right? Hebrides Islands told a thrilling story about the protective care of angels. Listen to this. Hostile natives surrounded his mission headquarters one night, intent on burning he and his wife out of their home and killing them. John Patton and his wife prayed all during that terror-filled night. Natives outside, torches, we're going to burn the house down. You got the picture? Um, let's see. They prayed all night. When daylight came, they were amazed to see that unaccountably the attackers had left. They thanked God for delivering them. You say, well, that's pretty cool. Listen to this. A year later, the chief of the pride of the tribe was converted to Jesus Christ. And Mr. Patton, remembering that night a year ago, asked the chief, what kept you and your men from burning down our house and killing us? That's why you were there. And the chief replied in surprise, 
who were all those men you had with you there? The missionary answered, there were no men there, just my wife and I. But chief argued that they had seen many men standing guard, hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. They seemed to circle the mission station so that the natives were afraid to attack. Only then did Mr. Patton realize that God had sent his angels to protect them. Pretty cool, don't you think? Do we need to see that to believe it? No, I believe it. But we need to be wearing the full armor of God, resisting the devil, prayed up. Amen? Prayer. Can't say enough uh, about it. Uh, let's see. I'm just concluding my notes here. Uh, I think we're almost ready for chapter 11. Yeah, we already talked about that. Um, okay, but there's all kinds of grace in this chapter. This chapter shows you that God can use an 84-year-old, weak, frail, scared dude to write down what he wants and be his messenger to his people, right? He can lift our, us, us on our feet and strengthen us just with his touch so that we can be used for his glory. Okay, chapter 11. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was good. Um, this is one of the most specifically fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. Several prophecies in chapter 11. So much so that this chapter is the reason critics say Daniel is a fraud. Christian, uh, Non-Christian critics always explain Daniel and Isaiah had to have been written way later after the fact. Like if you were going to write the history of the 18th and 19th century, you could do it because it's already happened, right? You could do the 20th century. A president will be assassinated in 1963 in Dallas. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, but it already happened. Big deal. If you could predict that 250 years ago, now you got something, right? It's so accurate. Critics say there's no way it's written before the fact right down to detail. But for linguistic reasons, for manuscript evidence, for a lot of other reasons, well, you can be sure this really was written way in advance. How many people know that God can see the future? It's no sweat for him. Remember I said earlier, we live in length, depth, and width, and then time. God is in a dimension above us, meaning he is, listen, outside of time. What does that even mean? I don't think you and I can imagine it, okay? But what it means to me is watching a the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, okay? You know what that is? Um, from a, a hot air balloon two miles up in space. You see the whole parade down there, the beginnings over there, and there's the end over there. He sees all of history that way. So it's no sweat for God to predict the future. Amazing accuracy, mainly focusing in chapter 11 on Israel, the countries around Israel and the struggles between men um, for control of Israel, that kind of thing. Uh, let's see. I think that's it for introduction. Uh, yeah. So we'll see in this chapter um, some of the same things restated, but with more detail. All right. Let's dive into chapter 11. 
verse one. And in the first year of Darius, some say Darius, the Mede, that's the Darius who took over the Persian empire after Babylon. I took my stand to support and protect him. Daniel was the prime minister of the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson, basically. When that all ended, Persians took over. Daniel maintained his high position as a prime minister, and now he's there to aid Darius, this, which is a title more than a name, the guy in charge of uh, Persia. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he gained power, when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Okay, so what's going on here is, um, yeah, we already talked about that. Let's see. He he wants you to know that there will be three more kings in Persia um, before the fourth really strong and rich one shows up. It turns out that's exactly what happens. The fourth very rich king was King Xerxes. That's with an X if you're writing it down. Um, far richer than the others, Xerxes um, did stir up everything against Greece. Um, let's see. The Persian Empire tried to wipe out the Jewish people during the the during the rule of the reign, I should say, of Xerxes. Um, that's the Book of Esther talks about that. Um, let's see. We already talked about that. So, uh, the ram and the goat, do you remember that? Which, which is chapter eight, same book, um, talks about the ram and the goat being Medo-Persia and Greece and the battle for, uh, that they undergo. The three more kings are Cambyses, Pseudo Smyrdis, sorry, and Darius the first. The fourth one is Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. This will be on the final, so you better write that down. Just kidding. Um, okay. Uh, Xerxes is Ahasuerus, same name. Uh, that's the book of Esther. We talked about that. He had the largest army in the ancient world, period. Um, so verse three, after that, uh, a mighty king, then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, which is very unusual, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. You say, okay, so after the three kings, who shows up? After that, Alexander the Great shows up, okay, who is the mightiest one of all. And in we, we've talked about him before. He comes to power in when he's 21 years old, by the time he's 32, he's taken over the whole known world in that area. Um, absolutely unbeatable. He dies in a drunken stupor uh, at an orgy when he's 33, dead. Conquered the whole world. Um, but strangely, usually when a king dies, his son takes over as the new king, daughter as the new queen kind of thing, you know, England and all that. Not in his case. None of his children uh, took over the throne. I have notes on that. I got to find it now. Um, it's very unusual. Um, let's see. 
He had a half brother named Philip who was uh, mentally uh, deficient. He had, uh, which was a possible heir. He had a son that was born after he died. And he had an illegitimate son named Hercules. Um, so uh, eventually there's a battle for power and all three and his uncle are murdered. All of them. So who gets the power? Did you read that verse again? Verse four. After he's arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds. Remember, we talked about this two chapters ago. Four generals, the main power behind his uh, military might, they, rather than fight each other, talk it out. And they decide, you go north, you take that kingdom, you take the east, you take the west, I'll take the south kind of thing. Um, and... Um, let's see, Cassander, one of the generals, ruled Macedonia and Greece. Uh, Lysimachus governed uh, Asia Minor. Seleucus took the rest of Asia except lower Syria and Palestine. And Ptolemy reigned over Egypt and Israel. That's the one this book's going to be concerned with because it has to do with Israel, God's people. Just the way God predicted it, it'll be divided four different ways. It's exactly the way it happened. Um, verse five. So now he's going to describe these two kingdoms in particular, the south and the north. Um, by the way, the kingdoms never had, look at the end of verse four, it never had the power that he had. Alexander the Great ruled the world. They end up with four smaller kingdoms. None of them are as powerful as his. Verse five, the king of the south will become strong but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. Okay, so we got the king of the north and the king of the south. South was Egypt, remember in relation to Israel. South was Egypt and, um, and north was, uh, I'm sorry, north was Egypt, sorry. Uh, uh, mm -hmm, south was Egypt, north was, yeah. Uh, oh, let's see. The nation to the south was Egypt. Yeah, that's right. Ptolemy and his descendant ruled. The kingdom to the north was what later became Syria. Seleucus was that leader. Uh, let's see. So um, those are titles, by the way. King of the south, king of the north. It wasn't one king in each instance. Sometimes kings came and went. But they, they used that title for all of them. Um, let's see. Let's keep rolling. So this is all predicting what's going to happen for Israel. Um, after some years, verse 6, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. But she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she'll be betrayed together with a royal escort, escort and her father and the one who supported her. So what happens is... They join forces because one of them knows they're not as powerful as the other one. So a plot is hatched, and here's the plot. The king of the south make an agreement. This is the marriage between Antiochus II and Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy, which is the Egypt guy. He sends his daughter there um, and says, go marry the king over there, and we'll have an alliance. And it doesn't work out. Um, so uh, he sends his, uh, his former wife, Laodice, uh, Laodice, sorry, from where we get Laodicea, by the way, um, 
he sends her, her away and marries Bernice, but eventually he takes his wife back. Um, Laodice marries Antiochus II again, but doesn't trust her husband. So ladies, she had him poisoned. Real nice group of people here, right? Um, just as God predicts. Um, let's see. Then Laodice, the, the wife who had been put away for this new wife, um, kills Berenice, the, the, the daughter of the other king, and their child, infant, and her attendants were all killed. This is all history, and it's just exactly the way God predicted, because he's looking at the whole parade of history, if you will. Um, let's see. So one from her family line, will, verse 7, will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. So Berenice's brother, Ptolemy third. I know this is hard to keep track of, um, Eurgetes is his name, um, is the next one, and he wants to avenge Berenice's death, so he attacks them, and he kills this Laodice later, uh, lady who had all those people poisoned and what have you. Um, okay, let's keep reading. Um, yeah, we're still there. Um, yeah, a brother from the south comes with an army against that leader and defeats him. Verse 8. By the way, this is kind of all foreign to us, but for the Israelites, for the Jews, it involves the countries closest to them. It was important to them because they're always in the middle of this fighting that's going on. Israel is. Verse 8. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone, and then the king of the north will invade uh, again. Okay, so it turns out this particular king, um, he's a little hard up for money, so he steals 40,000 talents of silver, 2,500 idol statues. Um, this is Callinicus the new guy, and uh, no, I'm sorry, this isn't Callinicus, this is the other guy. The one that dies is um, Callinicus, who falls off his horse, believe it or not. Um, the, the one that doesn't retain power. Uh, long story, I know it's a little confusing, I apologize. Um, but he carries away all their images and valuable articles of silver back to Egypt. Then the king of the north, verse 9, will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat, retreat to his own country. Um, so that's Seleucus II invades Egypt and then has to retreat. Now we come to the big guns, if you will. Verse 10, his sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Okay, now we're going to come to um, Antiochus Epiphanes, who we've talked about earlier. This is the one that does the abomination that causes desolation in the Jewish temple. He offers a pig, unclean animal, in the altar, sprinkles the altar with the blood of the pig, completely an abomination, unclean stuff for Israel. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah. So he is, uh, let's see. Then the king of the north, verse 11, will march out in a rage and fight against the king. The south will fight against the king of the north, sorry, who will raise a large, large army, but it will be defeated. 
So what happens is he tries to recapture his lost territory. This is Ptolemy the fourth attacks, um, but he ends up losing his entire army and he's almost captured and he has to split. He escapes. Um, it'll be defeated. When the army's carried off, verse 12, the king of the south will not be filled, will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. So this guy comes home with his tail between his legs because he lost. Um, he comes back to uh, with a much larger army um, to try to take uh, Israel, uh, try, to try to take Egypt again. But he, you'll see the Jews come into play here. For Verse 13, for the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years, they'll advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, here it comes, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. There were Jews who betrayed Israel and said, we better get with one of these powerful armies instead of always being in the middle. So these were covenant breakers is literally what the Hebrew says in verse 14. Apostate Jews who were, were revolutionaries, mercenary soldiers, and they um, joined the king of the north and they help him in his attack. So they're trying to get in with Antiochus to knock off Egypt, and then he'll leave them alone, and it doesn't work, basically, because he, the guy is so evil. Um, let's see. Can't wait to get to chapter 12, which is so much easier. Okay. <laughs> then, um, let's see, are we in verse 14? Yeah, the, yeah, those who are violent or the, the covenant breakers rebel, the Jewish, among your own people, the Jews. Verse 15, then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even the best troops, their best troops, will not have the strength to stand. So the north wins this battle. They rout the south. Um, and the fortified city was Sidon. How many have heard of Tyre and Sidon? Um, New Testament mentions it, and it's, of course, in the old. Um, this is about 200 B.C., uh, where all this occurs. Um, the king of the north, in this instance, is Seleucus IV. Um, the point of all this is God's right. He gets this 100% right. The details don't matter to you in your Christian work life. Tomorrow, you're not going to think about Seleucus and Scopus and Sidon and all these places. But for the Jews, it's mind-blowing that he got every single detail right. Let's take another verse or two, and then we'll quit. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, so uh, verse 16 yeah, the invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land. When you read that in, in the Old Testament, it means Israel. And will have the power to destroy it. He will determine, verse 17, to come with, with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. We're back to this again. And will give him a daughter in marriage. Remember that was tried before? This time it's a daughter named Cleopatra. Not that one, another Cleopatra considered the most beautiful woman of the time there. Um, he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. He gives his daughter, same kind of thing, get in with the king. The daughter 
forgets her dad and is loyal to her new husband, just like God predicted. His plans will not succeed or help him. Verse uh, 17, that was, yeah. Uh, 18, and we're almost done. Antiochus III, then he will turn his attention to the coastlands that's uh, around the Mediterranean, most scholars think, and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and he will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he'll return back to the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen uh, no more. Eventually, um, he dies. Uh, Antiochus returns to Antioch, named after him, dies a year later. Now we're all the way down to 187 BC. He tries to reunite the uh, Alexander's empire and never is able to do it. We're going to quit there. I know that was confusing, that last little part. Um, let me say in conclusion before we close... Um, there was a lot of talk about Satan, demons, creepy stuff tonight, okay? Have you heard this verse? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, he that is in the world primarily means Satan, but it can mean anybody in the world. God that's in you is greater than all, right? Certainly greater than Satan. If you want... Um, some of you remember the Star Wars movies, right? Okay, where there's the force, right? Remember the force? There's a good side of the force, very powerful. And then there's an equally powerful bad side of the force. You need to forget all that. Winston's shaking his head. No, forget all that. You know what that is? That's Hinduism, okay? Um, the good side, the bad side. Boy, they're pretty equal. Not in the Bible. Satan, at the end of the world in the book of Revelation, mounts a rebellion against God, okay? In both in the tribulation and in the millennium, if you're a um, premillennial like I am. In both cases, when Christ returns, you've heard of the Battle of Armageddon. I mentioned it last week and the week before. It's no battle at all. Christ just takes charge, grabs the devil, grabs the Antichrist, grabs the false prophet, and throws him in prison, basically. Kills the false prophet and the Antichrist. Throws the devil in prison for a thousand years. The devil at the end of the millennium, read this in Revelation 20, starts a revolt. And again, God says, go get him. Like a stubborn child, grabs Satan, and he's thrown into alive into the lake of fire where he's tormented forever and ever. Forget the force, the good side, the bad side. God is all-powerful. That's not true for Satan. That's not true for any demon. You and I are no match for Satan. You try to take on Satan or a demon by yourself, you and I will lose. So would Billy Graham. So would the Apostle Paul, right? So would the Archangel Michael. That's why he says, the Lord rebuke you. Put on the full armor of God. Resist the devil. Be prayed up. And you don't have to worry. There's not a demon behind every rock. There's spiritual battles going on in heaven, but there's very little written in the Bible. That's because God wants us to concentrate on, listen, the vertical, which is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as a servant and he as master and Lord and savior and the horizontal, which is your relationship with other human beings, right? Four of the commandments in the... Um, in the Old Testament, remember the Ten Commandments, the Ten Suggestions? The Ten Commandments, four of them are vertical, have to do with God and man. Six are 
horizontal, how you treat other people. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's all horizontal. Have no other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. That's vertical. That's the main stuff and the plain stuff. This demon devil stuff is in there. That's why we talked about it, but it ain't the most important thing. Shall we close with prayer? Thank you, Lord, that the battle may be going on right now as we speak. And thank you that your angels uh, are up there battling on our behalf and on your kingdom's behalf. Thank you that we don't have to fight that battle, but we play a part by prayer, by obedience to you. And we're humbled by seeing a great prophet of God get humbled by an angel. And we're also humbled by how accurate your word is, God. Absolutely astounding accuracy. So we bow before you both as our Savior in Jesus Christ and our Lord and Master. We pray that you would help us to balance our theology with this demon stuff, with the fact that we are to concentrate on you, Father, and keep our eyes on you and on eternity. Thank you for these truths, God. May they change the way we live and the way we view everything between now and eternity. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Thank you on Zoom. I'm going to turn my screen off and mic off, and we'll see you next Tuesday, hopefully. God bless you. Thanks for being here.